Welcome. So today, today is it's Good Friday, um, and we we joke around all the time about how there's no way to fit three days and three nights between Friday night and Sunday morning. Um, but we are we're remembering tonight the uh, the death, burial, and uh, the the crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ. Um, and I think it's significant. Growing up, uh, we never did Good Friday uh, in in the church that we were a part of, my my dad's church. We just never did it. I I, I don't know why. Um, we would do a Wednesday prayer meeting, but we would never do a Good Friday. And so I was in my late 20s before it even occurred to us that maybe we should try something like this. Um, and, uh, and we've always done it. Um, as long as I've been a pastor, we've always done this. Um, it's a, you know, obviously a, a small service and it can be a, a, a gloomy service, um, sometimes. Uh, but, uh, there's a, there's a handout that I, I hope everybody's gotten. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a couple of songs. We have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a couple of songs and then we are going to, um, we're, we've got folks around the room that are going to be reading. Um, I'm actually uh, in kind of read a part in the middle. I'm going to, for the most part, let it just stand on its own. Um, because we've been going through the book of John, and we have reached uh, the, the crucifixion part of the gospel of John. And um, we get to this, and it is so easy to dwell so much on the darkness and the suffering involved in Christ's crucifixion. And um, if you, you have the handout, there's a little introductory paragraph that says, We gather this evening to remember the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. The solemnity of this moment is not grief, but gravity. We would be aimless and lost if Christ's death had not atoned for our sin. Like planets orbiting the sun, we are drawn to the cross because it is from this dark moment that all life, meaning, and hope springs. The, the reason we celebrate the crucifixion is not for the suffering and the pain, but for what it precedes, the resurrection. If we dwell entirely on the grief, if we dwell entirely on the pain, the suffering, the torture, and, and I've been to services that were torturous about the tortures of Jesus, um, that, is, that is not what saves us. It is not his suffering that saves us. He endured the suffering. He died. He shed his blood for the, the, uh, the remission of our sins. But his resurrection is what declares him to be our savior. And so, yes, he, he dies. And we remember that. And we, we feel the gravity of it. But it is not a death Without hope, it is the death that gives us hope. And so we're going to join together and, um, and spend some time on that. I want to invite you to grab a hymnal, the red book that's in front of you, with the exception of the people sitting in this row. I will not be able to grab one. Um, I'm sure you can get one from behind. There's one right there, too, Dan. There's one on the, on the pew right there, the chair. All right. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna grab the hymn book and we're gonna begin now. Some of these songs may be unfamiliar to some of you, so those of you that know it, you're gonna have to sing it louder. We're gonna begin with hymn number 426. 
So this is, in the old days, this is how you sang in church. I know this is tough for some of you, um, but you didn't have a projector. You had a, a book, and you hoped that the guy leading the song knew the tune. And tonight, you're going to hope that the guy leading the song <laughs> remembers the tune. Um, but we're going to sing, Blessed Be the Tide um, That Binds. Uh, this is really our kind of our opening song, our opening prayer. We're all here together because we... We have all come to Jesus, and that's the tie that binds us together. Um, I cannot think of any other dynamic in the entire world that would bring this crew together, um, but Jesus um, has brought us all together. So let's let's sing together. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our sing number 324. You can't sing when I survey the cross sitting down, so you have to sing it standing up. So we're going to see, we're going to sing uh, the first, the second, and the fourth verses. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of My riches gained, I count but loss, and for contempt on all my pride. Verse 2. Oh, 
as we were reflecting on, on the, the crucifixion and death of Jesus, an opportunity to share some reflections along the way. So if something strikes you in the passage or there's, um, there's an aspect of it, um, my reflections are kind of jotted down here, um, but we want to we take some moments and, and we want to speak Christ into the lives of everyone that's here. We want to we speak together. This is kind of like, I know this is going to sound weird, but this is like a Quaker meeting. So in the, in the Quakers, there's no preacher. Everybody sits on the edge, outside, of the, outside of the room. The chairs are all on the outside of the room facing in, and they talk during the service instead of, instead of having somebody talk for 45 minutes. Now, I'm glad you guys let me talk for 45 minutes, but, but uh, it's, it's good to have a discussion. So we're going to do that. So I'm going to invite... Uh, Eric Wittenberg is going to read John 19, 16 through 24. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier and his, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John interposes Christ's kingship, confessed by the unbelieving Roman procurator with the humiliation of being crucified between thieves, naked and mocked. Paul reminds us that Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself. 
the Philippines to Allowing himself to be taken to the lowest possible position opens the door for even the bravest of sinners. Crucified thieves and gambling Roman soldiers alike can look on the King of Glory and see that he has been where we all have been and offers us a new and living way in his own sacrifice. So, wow, a lot of page turn going on there. <laughs> We're just going to leave that behind and move on. <laughs> uh, what what thoughts come to mind as we as we reflect on on this scene of Jesus between the the, the thieves, um, the Roman soldiers, uh, bargaining for his garment? Uh, the thought that comes to my mind is even before he did any of this. He poured himself into human flesh. That's it. Which is why we celebrate Christmas, because without the incarnation um, and some of the ancient heresies were that Jesus didn't have a body, that he swapped the substitute in to be crucified, all kinds of fun ideas to get away from the true crucifixion. Lucy, you got your hand up? Um, Jesus did it willingly, not helplessly. Yeah. I'm thinking that um, I must have realized he really was somebody if they were casting a lot for his clothing. Yeah, and I think I think for me the the. Um, I want to give I want to give kudos first of all to Janet for getting procurator wrong right. Um, yeah, um, that's that's a Roman title for the governor of Judea, so it's Pilate. If you, you needed to, um, my wife struggled with that one this morning as well. I'm throwing her under the bus there, but um, but I, I think for me, I really for me it is it is the interposition of Pilate saying Jesus is the king, but crucifying him amongst thieves. And then there's Roman soldiers there. And John, I think, observing that, I, John has an artist's sensibility, and he sees the asymmetry of that, the oddness of, of the fact that he's he's hung between. You notice he, John doesn't say anything about what the thieves say. He doesn't even say that they're mocking him like the other Gospels do. He just says he was hung between the thieves, but he wants us to see king of the Jews. He wants that in our in our in our eyes and our thoughts this the paradox right john's john's gospel is full of paradoxes um and so uh, the paradox there let's move on to the 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 next section the cross is compassion and amanda is going to read to so the soldiers did these things but standing by the cross of jesus were his mother and his mother's sister wife uh, mary the wife of clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Only John records that among the women at the foot of the cross were his mother Mary, once the virgin full of grace, Luke 128. Besides the former demoniac Mary Magdalene, Luke 8:2, the other gospel writers do not include Jesus' whispered instructions to John to take his mother under his care either. Jesus was the only one who could bring this disparate group together. All of them were powerless, confused, and grieving as they stood there. 
They were no less or more undeserving of grace than the thieves or the soldiers, and yet they find a purpose, a place in his words. Isn't it interesting that Mary is standing next to Mary Magdalene? That that just caught my attention as I was reading this. The two absolute extremes of women around Jesus. The, the, the teenage Mary, the virgin, who is full of grace, you know, well-favored, all the different translations of that. The one who bursts into song of being told that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary Magdalene, who probably was a teenager or early 20s when Jesus met her, and she's possessed by multiple demons. And it, it occurred to me, and this, this is just my brain, imagine the opportunity that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to minister to a young woman that didn't have all the favor and grace and opportunity that she had. And to be now in her 40s, probably, or her 50s, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, to be able to minister to this young woman who's known nothing but heartbreak and death and destruction in her life. And they're standing there together. And then John, I, I, I think Jesus, I, I put this in whispers. I, I think they're actually standing right next to Jesus during the crucifixion. They're not off far away. And by the way, the line that says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Well, his home's in Galilee, so I don't think they actually just left right there. I think they stay there the whole time, but she's under his care now. And I think he whispers to, to his mother. He says, woman, here's your son. And, and I just picture young John, who's a teenager, just taking this responsibility for Jesus' mother and, and the beauty of the trust that he has in John and his responsibility. Uh, what other thoughts come to mind in that in that passage? John was the only disciple that was there. John's the only one that's there. Um, I don't know, just, just appreciating that, that Jesus in this hour of torment is still worried about caring for his mother. Yeah. And we've mentioned this in the series on John, but when he says woman, this is not a sign of disrespect. This is a sign of great reverence. He uses it only several times. He uses it with his mother. He uses it with the, the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well of Sychar. And he's actually giving her respect by doing that. You know, he's speaking to her. A Jewish man would never consider a Samaritan woman a woman of honor. And so he's showing respect to these women. I think both of these sections speak to humanity on a whole. Jesus is with the thieves and Mary and Mary together. It's like encompasses everybody. Yeah, absolutely. This this kind of microcosm of the world, of all different stages of exposure to Jesus, all coming to the cross. I think about the intimacy that Mary must have had with Jesus there, even though he was giving her to another man. Have and care for her. Mm. Yeah. Um, Jesus's devotion to his mother gets blown out of proportion um, in some traditions, but um, I last was it Christmas of 2021, I think we did this series on Mary um, and and looked at looked at how I mean she is one tough chick. Um, she takes on she takes on the rabbis in the in the temple uh, courtyard. I mean, she she is not to be messed with, this woman. 
Um, you know, we tend to see her kind of meek and mild on a donkey on Christmas morning, and that's kind of where we stop with her. Um, she is she is a pretty intense woman and a great follower of her son, which is tremendous that she knows who he is and willing to follow him. Now let's let's move on to the cross as bitter salvation, and uh, Dee is going to be reading the scripture here. After this, Jesus, knowing all that, all hold on. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John. Cites Psalm 69:21 in reference to Christ being given sour wine. It is a reference to the reproach and shame of his enemies that broke the heart of David. Still, David wrote, "I am afflicted and in pain, but your salvation, O God, has set me on time." Psalm 69:29. The world would always oppose the Messiah; would always turn to him, because although we need a savior, we don't want a savior. It is only through suffering at our hands that Christ could show us the depth of his salvation. He tastes the bitterness of all our hatred and enmity, and still he finishes the work set before him, still is glorified in what was indeed or intended as humiliation. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to get too graphic, but the sponge on the branch uh, is how... It's Roman toilet paper. That that is how they cleaned themselves after going to the bathroom. That's how much they want to humiliate Jesus. That's how much um, they're how far they're willing to go to mock him. And it the fact that Jesus calls for it in John's gospel. He called, he says, I'm thirsty. He knows what's there. He knows what they have for him because he's going to fulfill this passage. And N.T. Wright one time was asked, uh, the British uh, theologian, he was asked, do you think that Jesus consciously fulfilled scripture? In other words, did Jesus get up in the morning and say, I'm going to fulfill Psalm fill in the blank today? And Tom Wright, he, he said the most amazing thing. He said, he said that being the living word, Jesus, as a man, so immersed himself in the scriptures that he didn't go about trying to prove scripture, to, to fulfill scripture. He simply fulfilled it by being himself, which was an extraordinary, I just, it, like, like, blew my mind. And this passage, Psalm 69, is, is David crying out about the affliction of his enemies. But he says, no matter how much I suffer, no matter how much I'm in pain, you will... I praise you because you will set me on high. You you will elevate me. You will you will not even that you you will save me, but you will you will elevate me above this, and and people will see your salvation. Um, so what 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 thoughts come to mind as we read that passage? I just think he his forgiveness is no limit to mm. what these people are doing him to endure that. When he didn't have to, that he was fulfilling the scripture. Yeah, and and think about the paradox. 
How many times have we read in John, John, Jesus keeps saying, but I need to be glorified. I will be glorified in this. I'm going to be glorified in this. How is this glory? How is this glory? It's it's extraordinary. You know, it's really um, profound. Um, I don't even really have words for it. Other thoughts? Right? Um, I just noticed this at the first. Mm. But how did he describe himself in John? Right? He, he's the one who gives the living water. Yeah, and he'll never thirst no more. Yeah. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection, but you just I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> That's going in the commentary. Um, it, it just passage just reminds me that God so wants a relationship with us that he was willing to let his son go through this. The shame, the reproach. Um, it, it's not a, you know, that it was his, his plan to allow us to happen. And, uh, just the, uh, the, the, that extent that he wants that relationship with us. I'm just thinking the previous section before and then this by Dr. Pugh, those standing at the foot of the cross must have been they had their ideas of what he was supposed to be and do, and he wasn't meeting all those in that moment. Um, but then we know that Jesus, for the choice set before him, and he wore the cross, warning and shame, you know, um, because he knew what was ahead of you, why he had to go through with it. Um, and that he said, I won't drink this cup again until I'm in the kingdom of heaven. And that fourth cup is that cup of rejoicing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's looking ahead to what's going to be in Satan, of course, and, and you know, is, is thinking he's one. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, Jesus simultaneously disappoints and exceeds the expectations of everyone around him constantly. Yeah. Russ? Oh, strikes me as it's Jesus against the world. Roman government, pilot, uh, Jewish hierarchy, turning the mob on him. Uh, the only ones on his side is mom and, and John and, and Mary Magdalene and a few believers. And all the heat of mankind was dumped on him at that time, including all the sins from Adam to the end of the Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the entire the entire drive of the world focused at one point, right? Um, my my dad probably stole this from somebody, but he said he, he said that the cross is the bridge between the heaven and earth. Um, you know that that the reason Jesus died upright was because it was connecting the mercy of heaven to the to the sin of earth. Um, I'm pretty sure he stole it uh, because there's a kind of a picture of that in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, so the, the theology of the picture is wrong, but but the same idea is, is present there. Yeah, but the whole world turned against him. Yeah. I think, too, what it must have been like to be in John's shoes as you are writing this down, and as the Holy Spirit is, is giving you the words to say, and I don't know if you made these connections, back to Old Testament scripture when he was physically there, but I would imagine that if he's sitting there writing stuff down, it's probably that his mind blood left and right. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, too. Like that was another fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that wasn't done for his faith, not even that 
open with the start of the format, but now even yeah. more so. Yeah. Uh, I, and and this, this is the one I always like, is the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, when they get there and they're breaking bread with Jesus, Jesus then explains all the things in the Psalms and the scriptures that pertain to him. And I just imagine those guys then going back to the upper room, talking to the disciples, okay, guys, we've got to get all this down. All right, so he said this about the Psalm, this Psalm, that Psalm, this Psalm, the Exodus, and this one, and they're all scrambling to write. You know, yeah, but it, he definitely, I mean, John is very, John is very methodical in the way that he uses the Hebrew scriptures. He, he has a, he has a very unique way of using the Hebrew scriptures. If you read the different gospel writers, Matthew, for example, Matthew, it, I don't know whether his memory was faulty and the Holy Spirit just didn't correct him, but he's always mashing verses together from like different places. He's like, and Isaiah said, and you're like, Isaiah didn't say that. That's Malachi. Um, but, you know, so you get you get kind of these these moments with him. And, and Mark actually quotes very little scripture. Luke quotes a lot. John has a very unique way. It's almost like he's sitting down and kind of playing over in his head the memory and connecting all the pieces. There was another hand, Eric. Yeah, also, just in general, John obviously is there. And he, in some ways, is a representation of the disciples but but at least ten of us are just they're just not there. Too afraid. Now now in his defense in their defense though we know that John is known to the house of the high priest. So John may have some kind of protection. That doesn't excuse his brother James though. Because he would have had the same deal. And Peter was able to enter the house with John. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So I have a feeling they could have been there if they wanted to, but they were terrified. I mean, the Bible is very clear. They're 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 terrified of this situation. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult thing, and, and it's so. But I do also, again, this is me, my imagination. But 18, 19 year old John goes back to the upper room where the other ten are. He goes, well, his mom went. <laughs> like there's a bunch of women there and you guys you guys couldn't get it together to get down there you know and i don't think he did it as a you know as a joke and we're laughing about it now but i mean think about it these these four women you know these women are all there you know yeah. Uh, yeah. there was a tough woman there so, yeah what oh there was a couple yeah <laughs> I have no, I have no doubt that Mary would have taken somebody down if she needed to. She was, she was a, she was a, she was a tough one. All right. So uh, Ray Puglia, I'm going to read the the divine paradox. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, but that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and then of the other, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
Jesus is not just the fulfillment of some parts of the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Hebrew scriptures. Christopher Wright described Jesus as the end of the time of preparation. If you haven't had a chance to read his book, Knowing, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, um, hard read, some good stuff. John recognizes that Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world, was killed on the Jewish day of preparation. And so he is covering, he is the covering salvation of God. He's the lamb that would be slaughtered for the Passover. Jesus' bones were not broken. as was customary with the Passover lamb. John then goes further to describe Jesus as the pierced one of Zechariah's oracle. And the oracle are the words of God. And so Jesus is depicted as God incarnate. Come, as Zechariah 13, 1 says, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. As he often does, John superimposes two seemingly contradictory concepts, creating a paradox. He also inserts his own confirmation that these things are true, placing himself in the same position as we are. In other words, confused by the truth of the paradox. The cross is the divine paradox. The in, irreconcilable experience of God the Son as both Savior, as sacrifice and Savior, Hebrews 7.27. Faith is found in the space created by this divine paradox. Perhaps no one has described the paradox better than Michael Carr, who calls the cross a violent grace. These two things cannot coexist. And yet, John says... It is truth. Sacrificer and sacrifice on the cross. Both the one, people always, there's a huge debate. Well, who did Jesus pay the price for sinners to? Did he pay it to God? Did he pay it to Satan? What's called ransom theory. Um, did he pay it to himself? The answer is, he is both sacrifice and sacrificer. He is both the offering and the one it is offered to. He is a paradox. And it's in that paradox that we find faith. If it was easy and reasonable and fit our logic, it wouldn't be faith, would it? It's the mystery that makes it so unbelievable, and yet we must believe it. It's a paradox. Um, John loves that idea. We've, we've talked about it so many times in John's gospel. How many paradoxes does he set up? I'm hungry. Then the disciples bring him food, and he says, I've already eaten. Nicodemus comes to him um, at night. All right? And so what does he do? He talks about... He, Nicodemus asks him a question. He never answers Nicodemus's question. He's, he's constantly this frustrating paradox. Um, he's a living fulfillment of the Old Testament law, and yet he exceeds it in every way. He's a paradox. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read the book of Hebrews, when you read through the book of Hebrews, there's just paradox after paradox after paradox of who Christ is. These extraordinary 
things that we just have to hold in tension. And it's not an easy thing to believe, but it's a, it's a real thing. And so I want to have Bob and Loni read their passage, and then we'll have a little bit more time of discussion. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Joseph, the secret disciple, and Nicodemus, the night visitor, went to the corrupt Roman governor to plead for the body of Jesus. John does not make mention of guards or conspiracies to seal the tomb, but he is careful to name these two men. They were members of the Sanhedrin and important men, Luke 23.50 and John 7.50. Their testimony mattered. They could and probably did bear witness to the truth of Jesus' death and burial. John calls them as witnesses in his case for the truth. Jesus was dead, confirmed by those who heard his death rattle. The soldiers who pierced him and the two rabbis uncleanness <coughs> on that day before Passover to place them in the tomb. The cross really happened. Jesus really died. We do not celebrate a myth or an abstraction. There's so much talk about the resurrection and its historicity, and there's a little thing in the bulletin on Sunday about that question. Um, but the reason that John mentions these guys is because they would have been able to verify that Jesus had died. As rabbis, they knew what it meant for somebody to be dead. If you've ever heard the theory, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead and he, in, and he was laying in the tomb and revived him. Do we really think ancient people are that stupid that they don't know when somebody's dead? Right? I mean, these are people that understand this concept. They know how life works, how death works, or, or you know, well, they stole his body and, and they revived it. It's nonsense. Um, but John is dealing with that. And he says, look, here are two men qualified to speak to this topic. And they were the ones that buried him. All right, now, he brings up Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea is, is in the other Gospels. But John makes sure we know there wasn't, there wasn't one. There were two. And there's a very good reason for that. Because the Mosaic law requires two witnesses for something to be true. All right? And so did Greek law. So John knows what he's doing. He's presenting a case. He's saying these two men could verify that Jesus was dead. Um, and and uh, I, I, I do. I think it's fascinating. He doesn't talk about any of the stuff that's in the other Gospels, about soldiers being stationed there, about, about them making sure the cross, the, the, the disciples didn't seal the body, any of that. He just says, these two guys, and by the way, they, they <coughs> spice Jesus' body. Let's say Jesus is an average-sized Palestinian guy. He weighs about 150 pounds. They dumped 75 pounds of spices on him. 
If he wasn't dead before, <laughs> all right, he's death by potpourri. He is, he's down and out. Um, but, and they lay him in the tomb. And, and, and this is the thing, that's the big thing I, I wanted to point. Because of the day of preparation, these guys had no business burying a body. They, they were making themselves unclean. They would not be able to observe the high day because they were burying this body. This is usually entrusted to women because women could be unclean and not attend the Passover things. These are two rabbis who choose to do it. And although we don't have the records of this because of the destruction of Jerusalem, I'm more than willing to bet you that it was accounted in the priestly records and the Pharisaical records in the Jerusalem temple. These two guys did not show up that day. They could not come into the temple because of it. And I think that's what John is referencing, why he brings up such a, a big deal about this. So um, other thoughts about the, the passages. <coughs> I know. <laughs> I think a, a big takeaway for me is like the passage about the bones would not be broken and the casting lots. Nothing happened that God wouldn't allow to happen. And the prophets have told us all through the Bible what's, what's going to happen and what's not. And I just think we can take comfort in that today. There's nothing that's going to happen that God won't allow. True. You know, uh, sort of who's missing, uh, Peter, uh, coward, denied Christ a few times, and yet he became the foundation of the Yeah. I think that when we when we, we meet Peter again, he is all too aware of that, <laughs> of what Jesus said and how he blew it. Um, and he, he is ready to make it better. Um, and a few years ago, I did a series on on Peter, um, an old fisherman looks back, and um, and talked about how that's still that's still rubbed in the back of his mind that he wasn't strong enough at that moment. Um, and, and there are hints of that in in First and Second Peter. Um, just think about we have the luxury of knowing what happened three days later, and I just can't imagine the devastation yeah not a single one of them seems to really understand what's going on and can we fault them this is the hard thing you read the gospels and sometimes people get on these guys cases for not believing this isn't something that happens all the time it's only ever happened once in history so we get on the disciples case for blowing it but the fact of the matter is they were in kind of uncharted territory even Thomas, you know, I mean, he's he's two-minded about everything. His, his, he, he's all over the map. But I mean, you can't you can't fault him. This is this is this is odd. This is weird. And I think it's only the hindsight, right? Now I have a pet theory. I'll just leave this. Every time I have this conversation, I always wind up explaining it. But uh, I actually think that 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 John saw the revelation before he wrote his gospel. Um, so he sees the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, and it colors the way he writes his gospel. He And so he really sees Jesus as the lamb. The other gospels, they kind of bounce around a little bit, but John is very, very definitely putting Jesus in that, that he's the sacrifice. He's the only one that calls him the lamb. Yep, he is the only one that calls him the lamb. That's right. He's the only one that does it. 
And, and so we get this. And if you really, if you read John's books backwards, if you start with the Revelation and then read the gospel and read the letters, you're like, oh, maybe that's where that idea came from. It, it's it's interesting to think how that would have altered his thinking. Also fixes what's called the synoptic problem. Why doesn't John report things the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do? Well, if you just saw the Revelation, you would report things differently, right? Um, you, would, you would present things in a different light. So um, so that's, that's kind of my thing. One day I'll write a book about it. Mm-hmm. So again, right. in all probability, he's lining up the death of Jesus with, at the same time as the lambs are being slaughtered at the temple court yep. for Passover, yep. which would have been the next day, yep. which in then theory it was Thursday night, not Friday night. Yep. The Sabbath they're talking about is not the Saturday Sabbath, it's the Friday Passover. Yep. The high holy day, yep. Yeah, it's probably Thursday. Thursday works. Friday really doesn't work. There's, you just and I've seen all kinds of math to try to get three days and three nights between Friday night and Saturday and Sunday morning. I don't know how anybody could possibly do it. Thursday, you can you can chart it out. You can see how you count the days and it works. Um, my dad thinks it's a Wednesday. That's too you many days. You can see on Sunday morning when he rose. Before Sunday, but he's already gone, so you can't even right. count can't, Sunday. Yeah, you can't really count <laughs> Sunday. It's, 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 it's really tough to get three days and three nights between basically Friday night to Saturday before Sunday before dawn. It's really tough, um, you know. And I've seen people do it, but it takes a little bit of gymnastics. Um, what? Twelve-hour Twelve days. <laughs> now you worked at Walmart too. Um, <laughs> too. So had to cross the day. Yeah. The international dateline was in Jerusalem that year. Um, yeah. um, other other thoughts about the passage? Um, just thinking about the comment you made about the, the importance of the, the two witnesses and the strength of the, um, the the internal witness of the scriptures here is so strong uh, of the accuracy of what happened in his the crucifixion and his death uh, that uh, and many of you maybe have read it but I mean, there's there's you know forensic pathology reports that review the accounts um, and have demonstrated the, you know, the the accuracy of what a person would have gone through in those in that situation uh, and it's uh it's just amazing that the, the little detail that I mean, only comes through the true account absolutely 